This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. Uh, My guest on the podcast today, coming to us in this COVID-19 remote edition of the podcast, is Aaron Skiles, co-founder of New Anthem Brewing Company in Wilmington, North Carolina. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Hey, Jamie. How you doing? Thanks for having us. It's an interesting story. First met Aaron at uh, our brewer's retreat back, I think it was 2015, Aaron, wasn't it? It was. Back um, at at the very first edition of our brewer's retreat, uh, where we... Uh, decamped to the mountains of Colorado and uh, homebrewed with some uh, some really fantastic brewers. And uh, then a few years ago, you know, you reached out and were like, "Hey, I want to send you some IPA." And uh, and that's kind of where we started going down this rabbit hole. Uh, if any you know craft beer brewing readers recall our uh, IPA issue and our best beers of the year issue in 2019, uh, you might recall New Anthem had double 100s in that issue uh and just kind of came out of nowhere and just completely floored our blind uh review panel with the quality of those ipas and uh and it was just this kind of watershed moment where you think i i mean i know that guy and now this is what they're this is what they're doing uh and uh if you want to uh in fact by the time this podcast hits the air people will be able to see it because the issue will be out our uh, 2020 ipa issue uh and you can see they have repeated this year with a perfect 100 score for clapback IPA in this IPA issue. Uh, and so, Aaron, and I'm just I just gave you that information, even though I hadn't told you that before. With this kind of you know back to back 100s in our IPA issues uh, year after year, you're kind of building a legacy. I can't wait to talk to you about hazy you know, brewing IPAs, bring uh, both West Coast style or all malt IPAs and hazy style IPAs, and try to dig into um, what the magic is that is producing this kind of clarity and this kind of intense hops flavor in your uh, in your IPAs. Before we do that, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with G&D Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel G&D ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River and Kasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more trust G&D to chill the beer you love. Call G&D Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, haze for days in your IPAs. Carry Bio Haze from BSG adds that perfect, stable, cloudy appearance for your hazy recipe. Made with all natural materials, Bio Haze is a free-flowing microgranular powder that binds with protein molecules in beer that form polyphenol protein complexes to produce a cloudy haze. This unique product can be added to final beer to give your beer that famous haze. Find out more about BioHaze at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. So Aaron, uh, talk to us about uh, yeah. your brewing history and how you uh, how you got into it. Uh, you know, what were those kind of pivotal moments where you realized this is something you want to do for a career, and then uh, how you got started with New Anthem and uh, you know what that progress has been from 2016 when you launched to today. Um, brewing history. I mean, if we want to take it way back, I had um, was in the ski industry in Northern California in the 1990s. I am old. Um, 
and uh, I homebrewed with a couple of friends out there, but uh, that really didn't amount to a whole lot. It was more of a kind of a week, just a weekend kind of hobby for us. But that's really when uh, I was kind of introduced to hops in Sierra Nevada, and um, I used to summer in San Francisco. And surprisingly enough, uh, looking back now, um, the apartment that I lived in on the lower Haight was uh, Haight and Fillmore. We were like a half a block away from the Toronado. I didn't even know what the name of it was at that point. It was just the place with the really good, <laughs> with the really, really good foreign beers. Um, yeah. I got into brewing and it's kind of funny. Um, my wife and I went out to to Denver. We used to, we tried to, um, we haven't in a couple of years, this place is kind of, uh, become a pretty heavy backpack I carry around with me, but we were trying to start it up again. Uh, we used to go to a, we used to go to concerts at Red Rocks every year and there was a, there's a really good value out there. And I'm um, not to mention what the business is, but it's tour. You can go on and you end up at a lot of breweries and it's relatively inexpensive. And we went into a brewery and there was a gentleman there, the brewer uh, who's won a couple of uh, GABF medals for some Belgian beers. Um, Ended up had a very similar story. He was um, an executive for a company. Um, this this guy's wife was like, "Hey, we need you home more," and um, ended up getting the conversation about becoming a brewer. He's like, "Well, I think this is how much we would make as a brewer." She's like, "You can't do that. Why don't you just open a brewery?" And um, <laughs> he was like, "Yeah, let's do that." And uh, we walked out of that place uh, that night. My wife's like, "You know what?" Uh, that was a pretty cool story. Maybe um, I'm paraphrasing because the people are be listening to this. There was a, some cursing going on. Um, she called me a couple of names, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, she bought me a homebrew kit when I when we got home. <laughs> and that was August of 2013, maybe 2012, probably 2013. And uh, I really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, ended up getting into, um, getting into all grain very, very shortly thereafter. And I'm like, wow, this is... It's not easy, but it's fun. It's gratifying. It's cathartic. It's something I could do instead of going out and playing golf or doing something weird on the weekend. It sure. was probably two years after that where I really thought and was getting away from buying beer that I enjoyed my beer enough to to drink it over a commercial product. Um, sure. and, I, and I ran a business for a German automotive. I ran a business segment for a German automotive supplier for the previous eight years. So uh, I've written some business plans. I'd um, worked for a couple of companies with some some friends of mine or some colleagues of mine. And um, we helped build business models for companies that didn't really do know how to do a lot, do business in the United States very well. Um, sure. I wrote a business plan saying, hey, if I opened a brewery, could I actually make money doing this? Or is am I like shooting my family's income in the foot? And I probably did to a certain degree now. <laughs> um, but I uh, put a business plan together, um, long to short, ended up, I have a, a friend that lives in my neighborhood and his, he was getting out of uh, selling a family business and I kind of pitched it to him. And he thought I was joking because we were cooking some hot dogs on Memorial Day and drinking a beer. And I had the, the flash drive had in my pop, pocket had the business plan on and I handed it to him and he's like, are you kidding me? And I'm like, no, I'm totally serious. I've been doing this for about six months. He took it home and we talked to some people and got a little bit of money. And it was probably about a year after that we opened our doors. Um, sorry, I'm not, that wasn't a very good story. I talk about beer better than I talk about history. So, 
I hope. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so talk to me about New Anthem. Uh, you know, as you were envisioning this brewery that you wanted to to build and create, uh, um, you know, there are a lot of different ways to, to constitute a brewery and to kind of pursue what styles focus on and the kind of brewery that you want to be. Um, what were some of the kind of formative moments there where you said, hey, this is what New Anthem you know, is and should be and um, figuring out how we want to get there? Um, you, you know, it's... That's um that's odd. We didn't start out as kind of a IPA factory, and I don't know if we're necessarily an IPA factory. We make a lot of different styles of beer. Uh, we make the majority of them are IPAs. Uh, we found uh, we found a really cool building downtown. It was the last working stables in Wilmington. Um, it's called the Livery or the McAllen Building, and they had cut it in half and turned half into apartments. And then the 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 more um, stably type kind of barn looking building in downtown Wilmington, uh, we rented. Uh, with the idea that we were going to be a brew pub and we were going to focus on a lot of traditional kind of Belgian uh, and Saison styles and hopefully working into mix firm. I made a lot of sour beer product uh, um, in between the IPAs. Our IPAs just kind of took off very, very quickly. We found some uh, some interesting things, and we had gotten into the haze craze before we'd even opened, and there wasn't a wasn't a ton of people. Uh, we had Wilmington Brewing Company in town was making some some pretty good hazy stuff as well at that point, but um, that just kind of took off. Um, we kept it kind of closed ranks and tried to keep it as local as we can, not necessarily creating a lot of hype, making sure that we could fulfill our place in the market bay, marketplace, number one being our tap room, and then a, a local product. Um, then we started canning, and a year later, we opened this production brewery and another tap room. So now we have a brew pub, a production brewery, and, brewery, and um, here we are. About how large is the brewery? I mean, what's your kind of yearly barrel uh, production? Um, I know it's kind of weird right now with what's happening this year, but we know. went from about eight hundred barrels to about we should be in the four thousand to fifty five hundred running year. Not yeah. in twenty twenty. Twenty twenty is going to be pretty rough. Uh, we opened this place. We didn't start brewing here beer until August of last year. We were supposed to have been open uh, for several months. Um, we kind of got caught. I think in the magazine article. Um, uh, Kate kind of mentioned we kind of got caught in the crosshairs of a couple of hurricanes and contractors were having a more difficult time fulfilling obligations on new construction and it's what's you really can't can't get too angry at contractors putting roofs sure. back on people's houses. Um, the crazy part is I drove by the neighborhood the other day and there's still tarps on people's roofs. I don't know if they just neglected to fix it if they got FEMA money or they'd in really bad shape but uh no no we're open now we should they're just waiting for the next hurricane to run through and then we'll just get it all done at one yeah, time no kidding no we should be right just short of five thousand barrels this year we're gonna we're adding a little bit more capacity um but the goal is not to create some kind of giant monolithic um nationally distributed beer we want to we do a lot of uh we do non-filtered non-pasteurized um non really any preservative type of beer. So right. keeping them fresh and in the close to the local market as we can. Uh, we do a little business with the distributor in, uh, in Georgia, mostly in the Atlanta area, and they, they can come pick up the beer and it's in the marketplace in 48 hours. I think it's important. Um, we, I mean, getting onto the technical side, we do a lot to create as much shelf stability as we can. And uh, we're, we get good in-house sensory um, 60, 90 days away. So. Yeah, hmm. um, I mean, if the beer is treated 
well, in an okay manner. We do a actually like our beers t- twenty one to thirty days better than I like them a week after we make them. So neither. Interesting, yeah. interesting. Um, I definitely want to talk a little more about that. Um, one of the things that struck me. Uh, especially as we were, you know, tasting that uh, first round you said in for review was for a small brewery because you were definitely smaller at, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in production at that point. That that scale, you know, that a brewery is at certainly gives you additional options and opportunities for hop selection, for dialing in the quality of your ingredients. Um, certainly, you know, as you gain a certain size scale and notoriety, um, the hops companies and you know reach out and you know you you kind of work through different tiers of access to these things and so even a small scale um the quality that you were eking out of hops was really impressive to me and i want to talk a little bit more about that before we do with nearly 20 years of innovation and experience brewmation specializes in electric steam and direct fire brew houses complete seller solutions and automated controls for the craft brewing industry from half barrel to 30 barrel systems brewmation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and brewing style whether you're starting a new brewery upgrading your cellar or just need some parts to keep you up and running brewmation has you covered visit them at brewmation.com to get started also born out of a basement in milwaukee a decade ago spike has grown to become a leading manufacturer of premium quality brewing equipment so if you're looking for a reliable system for home or a commercial grade nano for your brewery this is the time to buy spike is offering cbnb listeners a special 10 percent off all three vessel system purchases while supplies last visit spikebrewing.com craft and enter the code cbb at checkout spike brewing pursue what's possible so let's talk about that as a small brew pub, you know, um, with a relatively limited production, uh, you know, a year or two ago, uh, you know, the tasting your beers. I mean, this it becomes a difficult thing for a lot of breweries that scale to get access to the highest quality hops and to be able to push the kind of flavor through hops that they might like to. Um, and yet all the beers that we had from you. And I, when I say all, I think in 2019, you shipped us four beers for our reviewers. Every single one of them um, scored extraordinarily well in the mid to high 90s. And your t- two top beers that we ran in the magazine scored 100, uh, which is I, relatively unprecedented to, to see something like that. From your standpoint, brewing on a small scale and um, pulling ingredients in and trying to uh, maximize the impact of those hops, what are some of the techniques that you uh, you have developed to kind of one evaluate and understand which uh, you know how what these ingredients are and how you're going to move them into your product stream when you get them even if you're buying say on a spot market or on a limited scale and then to some of the um, you know techniques within the brew house that you find to kind of maximize the impact of those um that's a tough that's really a tough one and that's something we really had to learn on the fly um there are, I mean, and a, a lot of the pro, a lot of the pro brewers out there, especially the, uh, the, the old hat, and I won't say old hats because these guys are all still younger than me, um, learned as uh, they were either apprenticing or working with other people. Um, sure. There are some hops out there that just are particularly can be uh, super finicky, Columbus, Columbus Centennial, um, that if you don't really have a choice of what lot you get. You could be getting a pretty much a grab bag. Um, 
I think there are things that I've, uh, getting a good vendors that are willing to explain uh, some of the, the um, advanced numbers are will allow even even people that are buying spot to look at lot numbers. Um, a lot of the, the bigger vendors can you can go and look at lot numbers and say, hey, these will probably give us what I'm looking for. Whether it's an early crop Columbus or whether the Centennial was packaged or pelletized very, very early and picked early, and also finding certain farms and certain vendors that are better at other things, we have um, we have two or three hops that we get from uh, from vendor X because the quality of those particular cultivars or strains are far out, or I won't say far but are superior to what we could potentially grown in Oregon that could grown in Washington. And likewise, there are stuff that we get that, that we focus on looking at Washington grown or particular farms do a particularly good job. Um, and it really does come down. I, I won't say that I'm ashamed of it, but um, that it's a squeaky wheel kind of thing. I was loud and, and I won't say obnoxious, but really pushy because knowing that that was something that we would have to advocate for ourselves strongly to be able to have one, a continuous supply chain of quality material um, and two, to be able to get the things that are going to push us to uh, the level. I mean, there are four or five hops out there that, that if you get really good quality, um, it makes it all the difference in the world in your beer. We're also really lucky. Um, our, one of our sales reps from one of our wholesalers or distributors uh, came through and messaged me on social media one day and they had, I don't know, like probably 17,000 pounds of, co- of select certain varieties that we couldn't even contract in our first couple of years or our first year. And I ended up like buying more than I knew that we would use. And the, the funny part about it is, um, and it was Citra. Our Citra beers, the first year we made, were amazing. And then the, when we started getting contract that we weren't on select, they actually went down in quality to the point um, to where I was like, I don't, you can, I sold them all on spot and we stopped making, we would buy spot from other, um, like Lupulin Exchange or buy spot from other vendors. Um, and it's not a detraction on, on our vendor at all. Um, it just, it, it is what it is. I mean, like I would have rather have changed our model than to take a, a product that we make and say, I'm willing to make this for an entire year at a lower, in a lower quality sense. Um, That's I, crazy. So you stopped making some, you know, potentially popular brands just because you weren't exactly happy with the quality of the Citra that you had access to at that point. Yeah, it's important. That's a big one, man. That really is. I'm like, I don't know how anybody, can can make a life in IPA without Citra, um, except for like Russian River. Those guys rock. But anyway, um. how did you and whoever else you work with to kind of work through this, uh, you know, hops process, build this knowledge of quality? You know, I think that it's great to say we only want the highest quality thing, but understanding what quality is and being able to evaluate that quality on the front end while you are rubbing and sampling a hop, knowing how that is going to translate into a finished beer. That's a special, that's a very specialized skill. And uh, I'm very curious from a personal development standpoint, how you 
built to that understanding. I wish I could tell you that I'm really good at this. I, on certain hops that we would do pellet sensory on products that if we were have a sharp flavor or some kind of sharp hop profile, we would try to develop a muscle memory in our olfactory system to say, hey, when we rub these hops together, the, what we have now, try to remember what those fla- what those aromas and things that we get from it and try to look elsewhere. Also, I mean, I really think it comes down to finding the smart people at your vendor's offices that can tell you like, hey, there's this brewery that makes a beer that I really, really like that uses Simcoe hops. Don't, I'm not asking you to sell me their lot or anything, but what do they look for? Like if you were to look at the the advanced numbers, the numbers on the lots that they pick or where that they're from, and could you push me in a similar direction? And a lot of times they won't give you the information, but they can say, well, if you like A, you may like B and C. And then you get those and you put them side by side with what you currently have. And you're like, oh, I can tell the difference. Um, Not to plug anybody, but our Centennial Hops, it's like night and day. If you cannot tell the difference between our two, the two vendor or the two usually lots we get, the Centennial we buy now, it's like, oh my God, this is what two-hearted, the fresh two-hearted smells like. I've never <laughs> smelled like Centennial can can go from this beautiful floral citrus, like Centennial hops fresh, smell just like Centennial hops and beer. Um, and then sometimes they get like, if, they're, if they've aged or if they've not been stored well, they smell like dirty socks and they're still usable, but I'm not going to put them in. I'm not going to dry out a freaking beer with them. So... Um, Amarillo is the same. It's, it it really is advocating for yourself, learning as much as you can. Don't be ashamed or afraid to ask questions to the people that know more. I'm lucky. I've got a couple of friends that, um, in the, or a couple of peers in the industry. And I consider them friends that have worked for some people that are monumentally more experienced and smart than I am. And I'm not so prideful. The fact that I won't ask a stupid question. I mean, I should, I should know what the hell I'm talking about by now. And I'm every now and then like, Hey, I really need help. This is, seems kind of simple. I can ask you cause you won't make fun of me for it. And they're like, Oh God, that's a good question. Like so many brewers don't even know to think about that. And I'm like, God, I would thought everybody would have thought about it. So we're lucky. I'm lucky. Um, for sure. Well, this not, terror is always, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I'm just not, I'm not afraid to ask like dumb questions because it's not about, what they think about me and about what I make. It's, it's interesting to hear this. And I, we heard it, for example, from uh, Ross Koenigs of new Belgium on the podcast uh, a few months ago where he was talking about their Chinook and they are very specific about loving Idaho terroir for their Chinook and that it just seems to give them exactly what they want. Um, I know you don't want to give away all your secrets on this, but for something like Centennial, is there a state that you'd attach Ooh, it to? Yeah. Where, I mean, uh, I will tell you the farm cause I'm the, I love those guys, but I don't necessarily want to plug anybody on your podcast. Um, yeah, you know, um, Crosby, it's, it's hops, just, Crosby hops, sure, Centennial is amazing. Sure. Okay. Um, yep. Yeah, and their Amarillo. So that Willamette Valley, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, for me, Amarillo, you mentioned also, is there a, you know, a specific terroir that you enjoy for that one or, and how would you describe some of the differences between, uh, you know, in that range between what you like and, uh, what you're less excited about? Um, and Amarillo, uh, we use, we kind of 
back to Amarillo can get a little, little dank on us sometimes. And we are just yeah. working into our select lots. So we haven't had a select. I really, I think um, Oregon grown Amarillo is really nice too, but I've never had bad Amarillo. It just transitions from a, from kind of a, a peachy bright kind of citrusy fruit to a kind of a danky herbally citrus. Um, and neither, I like both of them. I would la- almost like to the point where I could have, like split my lots down the middle and use one, um, use one in the kettle and use one in the dry hop like we do with our Centennial. Um, I know it sounds kind of, but uh, I really like Centennial hops, especially good fresh scents. But yeah, I mean that's actually not a crazy idea. I had uh, we had some uh, you know beer for this past IPA issue where the brewer described using five different lots of the same exact hop variety to accomplish exactly what you're talking about, like different points of, you know, of, of view, even within that same kind of family to express different elements of, of, of what the hop tastes like. And I think that's, it's kind of an interesting approach. Um, you know, it's, I mean, you know, if you're a chef, you might use different types of basil, uh, in the same dish to accomplish the same thing because yep. they've got, uh, they have different flavor expressions. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just, uh, it's kind of interesting to see these fine points, the brewers are putting on these things. Let's talk a little bit about Citra. You know, obviously that's a big focus for you and you're, you're hyper careful about uh, how you select that. Have you all built an internal language for describing? And as you now are, uh, are working through some uh, selection on hop like Citra, uh, how do you go through that process of deciding this is what we want and this is what we don't want? Um, we went, uh, the majority of our, uh, a lot of our citrus is still non-select. Uh, we use a lot. Um, we will be all, probably all select on probably six or seven varietals, uh, upcoming crop. Um, we look yeah. to get away from the, the harsher caddy, potentially diesely things that you can get. And I, I will say late crop citra, and I say that with, uh, with truly kind of a, um, not not knowing that that's necessarily the case, um, sure. But it's finding lot finding stuff that we didn't like, and working with our vendors and saying, "Hey, here's the lot number that we had problems with." They're like, "Oh, here's the advanced numbers. Um, here's you know when it was picked, where it was grown, um, storage storage values, and stuff like that." And they say, okay, this is going to be completely different. And then you you look and you rub and you try to get really bright, fruity, fla- fruity um, aromas and good, sticky and aggressive, aggressive aromas. And then you talk to your vendor again, and and like when you when you rub seven or eight or ten or fifteen lots, they're like, you really you find yourself drawn to stuff in this range and now um you know nobody's gonna i won't say nobody but we're not going to yakima or oregon this year they're going to send us plugs now they know what we're looking for so if they send us 10 sets or 15 sets plugs it's all going to be in that range not necessarily because that we couldn't do better but it's like we like where we are with our citra beers and we make probably five majority citra beers and that'll give us a level of consistency um, so it's bright, trying to keep away from um, the, the, I guess, a little diesely kind of, you guess, I guess, yeah. push a little garlic um, towards the kind of more pungent stuff. And I would imagine those guys would be really, really interesting in some other styles of beer that 
that would, uh, or maybe earlier in the, in the process. For sure. Now, you know, you make you know, a lot of beers, at least use Citra as kind of a core player in a, in a number of beers. But, you know, as we taste beers, the things that separate good beers from great beers and just absolutely extraordinary and world-class beers are layers of complexity in those beers, you know, that it is relatively simple to make a, you know, orange, you know, tangerine, uh, you know, sweet fruit bomb of a beer. Uh, and it is a more complex thing to capture that kind of character, but also build a little fun funkiness to it, a little tropical fruit, uh, you know, weirdness, a little overripe element and, uh, you know, a little bit of green fruit, um, you know, and even some kind of like almost goose like mineral funk that we taste from time to time in some of these uh, IPAs that add these multiple layers and points, um, you know, to make it more than just this you know this one sweet fruity kind of note uh, let's talk a little bit about how you conceive of hops blends that push those layers of complexity in, you know into um, the beers as you're thinking about how we add these elements in these blends um, talk to me a little bit about your thought process um, thought process I mean building a beer usually build what it's going to look like, what are, what are non-grain adjuncts, and we'll talk about hazies in particular, it's going to be, and we'll, we do some that have no oats, we have do, we're getting ready to, we're building a beer right now, um, another majority citra beer where we're going to have very little adjunct, it's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of chit barley, which I think is kind of interesting, I think other people are doing that, um, we're going to make a really, really, really strong focus on those kind of body and head building properties that we get out of chit barley um but with regards to blends we take a look at knowing uh, one um going back and like what beers have i really really loved uh focal bangers great beer i love that beer what is that beer it's citra and mosaic okay well we're not going to try to hack obviously we're not the alchemist we get that we wanted to make a beer and and use a maybe a potentially even blend of mosaic and citra and we really like that beer and it didn't taste anything like theirs uh, likely to the fact that I think um, Mosaic has a um, is one of those uh, very transformative from lot to lot uh, kind of products, um, and uh, that's the Steez beer that you guys had last year. I, do, I think you'll agree that it, it doesn't taste a whole doesn't taste a whole lot like um, like Vogelbanger. We made this beer. We made this beer, and I guess if we have a flagship, we've made the beer more than any of them because um, we love it. And all of a sudden, we were like. We didn't have any mosaic for the whirlpool one day, or we didn't have enough. And I'm like, oh, why don't we throw 11 pounds of Simcoe in there? And it's just that much, like 12% of the hops, 20% of the hops. I mean, I think we're we were in the neighborhood of seven and a half pounds per barrel at that point, total top to bottom. Changed the beer, and it was like, wow. It went from like I really like this beer to now, yeah, I want this beer to taste like this all the time. Usually our successes come from accidents versus being overtly more clever than anybody with our hop selection because i don't think we are i hear brewers use that term and then at the same time you know like i was talking to brad clark former from jackie o's now private press and uh, he loved to make that case that there are no happy accidents that um you know these are there's these are processes of learning 
by which as you try to solve a problem you know that, that, that pops up um, you find a solution and sometimes you like those solutions you know better than uh, the original plan and that's okay that's just contextual learning um, it's not necessarily an accident it's uh, and there's an intentionality to solving a problem and, and when you find that and so in that sense talk to me a little bit about some of those problems that uh, presented themselves and then how you solved them and how you enjoyed those solutions and how that kind of pushed you uh, in a different direction now um you know with an ongoing kind of concern um we we have a, a beer that we make um just a kind of a couple of for instances and um we made the beer before we had ever canned anything it might have been the first like super high adjunct hazy that we intentionally went out to really make a murky murky beer i don't say i'll say murky but it was actually quite murky and um i had was still doing a lot of my research and development when recipe development at home on my Mac. Our house got struck by lightning and I didn't use any cloud-based anything. And I knew what was in the beer and I knew the proportions. I just didn't know where they came. So we chased um, we, we chased this beer for probably a better part of a year and a half. And it was still, it's one of the beers you're talking about that's uh, in that what untapped top 50. And we chased it and chased it and chased it. And it was probably four months ago. I was like, you know what? I'm done. Let's, we're taking all the mosaic out of the dry hop and we're going to put all Simcoe in its place. And I'm like, that was it right there. And the proportions are still the same. Uh, finding, sometimes finding things that you need in a beer to create certain things, but it works better. Um, like uh, some hops are, are vital, but some hops don't work in the kettle under, and I mean, uh, some Australian hops are particularly harsh. I mean, uh, the she, she truly tr shows the talent of some of these brewers that are doing 100% like Galaxy beers. Like Hill Farmsteads, Double Galaxy is freaking stupid. Yeah. And um, yeah. like if I tried to put, and I, and I know he gets better Galaxy than we do, but if I tried to put galaxy in the kettle to make a beer that good i would fall flat on my face we probably end up pumping that sh crap down the drain but um <laughs> maybe maybe not I'm, I'm, I'm harder on myself than anybody else is uh but um you what know is, you so what is it you know from a sensory perspective what do you get what do you when you brew with galaxy in that way what would it uh what would it taste like to you that uh, becomes unpleasant it's just a harsher it's a it's a harsher type yeah. of bitterness um um and that works well. I think it it it's a burnier Vic Secrets even probably even more so than that. Yeah. And uh, we I like that hop a lot. Um, but it it's one of those you just have to be patient with and take a little bit more time. Um, we the, usually stays in the tank a little bit longer. Um, we let some of that the, the polyphenols kind of gravitate towards the towards the crap in the bottom of the tank, and um, we're better for it. I do think that our Galaxy beers. Uh, and in Vic Secret as well, those two hops in particular age better and are probably like, we. you got the last of the Galaxy songs unsung that we made and we had switched over to Vic Secret um, after that um, because our Galaxy ran out and I still I still think it, it portrays the same way, but um, that beer might have been 60 days old by the time you got it. Huh. Um, yeah, uh, and it, it just, they seem to travel better. Um, it's lucky. Interesting. Kind of, yeah, you know, happy accidents are is 
we will um, we'll take a 100% dry hop citra beer that's a majority of citra in it, and we'll just throw some hops in. Simcoe works great. We make a triple uh, uh, triple IPA with only Simcoe and citra, and it's all citra uh, triple dry hopped. But uh, Laurel was one that like it just we were going to actually make clapback one day, and clapback is our double is our all hazy wheat pale oats double IPA with citra from top to bottom. Um, and we were short a significant amount on brew day, um, which seems to be one of our problems. And I was like, oh, what do we have? Um, and not, not so much you anymore. We have, supply we, chain we, there. We have, Come on, we have man. Better, we have better processes in place. Um, uh, and I was like, oh, we've got this fresh, fresh bag of laurel cryo pellets here. Why don't we throw laurel in there and we'll dry up the crap out of this thing with citra. And we made this beer and it was dry hopped. And, you know, what? a week later, we're crashing this guy, getting we taste this beer. I'm like, holy crap. And it's not that much, but it was completely different beer. Um, it was end up that we were going to call it was going to be clapback. I'm like, no, we have to really rebrand this beer. And it's easily one of our most popular beers now. And it's just clapback with a, a decent percentage of laurel cryo. Now we use laurel T90. We've gone away from cryo pellets. Um, in, in the kettle and it's just there are some hops that you could have done that with and you would have never noticed it um and the uh, simcoe if we'd have put that little amount it would have might probably i think probably make it a little bit better but it wouldn't have been like oh um but now it's like you get this geranium kind of um fresh kind of just a little bit of floral and i think it makes the pineapple side of those citra beers really 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 come out and what's the it, name of that beer? Uh, Bale. Bale. Okay. Not like get out of jail with Bale, but Bale. The, As in the ancient the, god. Yeah, the, the Kleenex gotcha. name of um, pre-Yahweh gods. <laughs> so you just mentioned that uh, you've moved away from cryo hops. Talk to me a little bit about that decision. Uh, is it a cost thing? Is it a quality thing? Or is it just the perceptible uh, you know, difference in it? What is uh, um, what's the reasoning? I'm not against them. Um, we, the, uh, when we started using cryo, it was in the, the bricks. And we would use it in the kettle to cut down on our the amount of vegetable sure. matter we had. We would usually, we would get, with some of those beers, we would get... In the seven to ten percent, um, we would pass through. We would um, we have throughput of a little bit better beer. We get two extra half barrels out of one of, out of our ten barrel system, and um, we transferred. They got away from the brick and went to the pellets, and we started dry hopping with it. And we just we had some. Um, I don't know if it was the particular lot we had, um, but we had some, um, and it, it might have been one of our. Might we might have been have some bad cleaning processes in there, but they weren't infected or anything like that. We just had sure, some, uh, sure. we had some polyphenol issues and I was okay. just like, Hey, we know that. And you would think that we would have less. I would have, there was less vegetable matter in those. And we went back to T nineties and everything is back to normal. Yeah. Uh, I want to keep talking about hops because this is a fascinating conversation for me. But before we do that, Abe Beverage Equipment is your trusted source for complete brewing and packaging solutions. Whether you're just starting out or looking to expand, Abe offers brew houses from 3 to 60 barrel and canning lines from 15 to 90 cans per minute. Call Abe Beverage Equipment at 402-475-BEER or visit abeequipment.com to learn more. Located in Lincoln, Nebraska, 
Abe is your trusted source for your brewing equipment. Visit Abe Equipment, that's A-B-E, equipment.com for complete brewery solutions. Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep-dive email only for all-access subscribers, premium content, and all-access exclusive merchandise. Go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. Let's talk a little bit about your usage of hops and, and the, you know, how do you kind of, you know, I mean, a lot of brewers talk about how they divide total hop load between uh, kind of whirlpool hot side and, uh, you know, and fermentation cold side. How does that typically break down for you? Obviously, it's going to be a little different depending on what the beer is. Um, but where do you find yourself doing that? And how do you, um, you know, consider or think about bitterness component in a world where we, you know, we're now talking about bitterness that's not necessarily added by measurable IPUs. Uh, where some of it is actually coming from, you know, cold side dry hopping. Um, and then, you know, so, so let's get into that kind of weeds. How does that break out between hot side, cold side? And, uh, and then how do you envision or kind of think about bitterness in these beers? Um, one, we, we, um, depending on our starting and finish gravity, we look at, um, where we want to start. We actually have a bittering charge in every one of our beers. Uh, there's quite a few hazies that we will um, we will accentuate some bitterness with some late boil hopping. Not a lot, but some. Um, and we... That's so retro, Aaron. <laughs> I'm fucking old, dude. Sorry. <laughs> No, it's um, all right. Uh, no, I think that's interesting. And, uh, you know, it's counter trend. There are some folks that uh, use no bittering charge and pushing it all into Whirlpool. And uh, how, how, in terms of bitterness, how much, you know, do you, would you typically push in a, you know, in a hot side bittering charge? Uh, we would be based on the, on the style of beer we make. We are upwards okay. in the 50 to 65 IBU um, on okay. our doubles, we we try to stick around the twenty-five to thirty-five range. Uh, that we scale depending on what our dry hops are. If we sure. have some real um, aggressive um, hops that traditionally give you some, you'll get that back end. Again, we go back into the Australian stuff. We usually back that off a little bit, um, and um, we. Uh, we are experimenting around. We get um, we use some pretty unusual IPA bittering hops. We use a lot of Nugget. Um, we've used uh, huh. a lot of Galena uh, just for the sheer fact that we had we could get that. Um, and we got our Nugget from Crosby as well. It's really nice. It is very even, stable, non-abusive type of bitterness on that. Yeah. And uh, I, I think we get a touch of kind of herbal accent when we first word hop with it. I couldn't tell you because we've we've kind of gotten away from first word hops, but I remember our beers having this like, oh man, there's this little kind of almost a touch of tobacco in there or something like that. Um, uh, no, about 50 to 65 on doubles. We go uh, above that on, if we do a triple beer, we only make a couple of triples a year, maybe maybe mm -hmm. two, um, yeah. not, uh, just not my jam. Um, and we have probably a handful out of the 70 IPAs we make, probably five of them have lactose in them, and we go a little bit higher on that. Uh, I really, I'm of the consideration, we did not want anything less than 7% have any kettle hopping uh, hmm. early on. I think it provides a platform for late kettle and whirlpool additions 
to shine, to have that that IBU to kind of latch onto. And I'm probably using some unscientific terms. Our beers have gotten better. Uh, we kind of we we always bittered a little bit. And uh, there was a couple of brewers I was doing a collab with, talking about other breweries they worked at. And I'm like, one made beers that I particularly liked, and they're like, oh yeah, we we dry hop every IPA we make to 50 to 80 IBUs before we, and I'm like, holy, nobody does that. And I'm like, I'm going to try it once. And I'm like, oh, I really like this. Um, again, happy accidents. Again, not being afraid to ask questions or be able to use techniques or do things that other people use to make your beers take like, taste like you want them to make. Um, we've gone away. We, we um, hop creep. We've, we've, God, our processes are continuously changing. You would think that as we develop consistency across our, our brands that um, we've gone from driving at day two to now we dry hop at day eight. Um, we've gone from dry hopping warm at 70 degrees to dry hopping at 50 degrees now, and that seems to work really, really well for us. Um, one, from a hop creep aspect, and two, from uh, from a, it seems like our the 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 burn fades faster. We get a less polyphenol component. Right. Um, the aggressive polyphenol component goes away faster. And um, it is constantly adjusting to to one, make your beers. Now we, now we have to focus on consistent quality because yeah. now we're, you know, we're out to a, a little bit wider market. And, Let's um, unpack both of those things. I'm I'm curious about uh, you know this kind of lower first um, dry hopping a day eight uh, means you are or probably what crashing yeast out and then dry hopping, which is you know seems so uh, you know 15 years ago uh, compared to the biotransformation approach that that a lot of brewers are taking today. But obviously you've done it both ways. Um, so yeah, talk to me a little bit. Have you have you censored you know these uh, in both ways with uh, uh, you know, dry hopping during active fermentation with this kind of post method, or what has kind of driven that move? Um, I'd like to say yes. Um, we haven't been able to do a really good triangle sensory on like brands because it's usually we're months between sure. the time we'll make beer X and we won't make beer X for 14 or 16 or 18 weeks. Um, I would like to say yes. Uh, it came from us trying to be more efficient and sustainable with our supply chain and being able to reuse yeast. Um, it, it really, that was the the driving push, and also to get rid of hop creep. We sure. have we have had some doozies. We've had to rebrand and repackage beers because we we had hop creep take a beer from. 7.3% alcohol to 8.7%. And, and, and no, it isn't. Oh my God. Yeah. And it just didn't stop. The funny part huh. about it is we did it on purpose because the, the, we had our yeast stalled. So we knew that like, we're like, okay, the, the yeast is stalling out. We tried to rouse the yeast, tried to rouse the yeast, got the temperature up a little bit. And I'm like, just throw, just throw 22 pounds of Amarillo in it. Next day it was like, just freaking going again. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's kind of fascinating, and that's all coming out of hops and dimes, huh? <laughs> yeah, uh, mosaic and amarillo seem to be the the big ones for us. That was an anomaly inside of yeah. inside of that. Um, we've gotten away from um, 
worm dry hopping anything with mosaic. We uh, we don't dry hop a ton with mosaic anyway. Okay. Uh, but the beers that we do, we uh, they were that was the the catalyst for that. Mosaic seemed to be um, the the most consistent creep on the block, and then Amarillo. Uh, anecdotally, we have no science behind that. Just noticed that sure. the beers we dry hop with those two hops, the ones that seem to be, we didn't even know what it was four years ago. We would just, again, that beer that we were trying to find, refine that recipe for, started dry hopping it with mosaic. And all of a sudden, like, I'm like telling our seller guys, I'm like, are you guys not cleaning right? Do we have an infection? What the heck is going on? They're like, I don't know what's going on. I'm like, this beer's like, it shouldn't be seven and a half percent, should be seven percent. <laughs> interesting to say the least i kind of got off topic there and that's the kind of that's my jam is uh tangents and not sure not answering your question directly no 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 that's a that's an interesting answer and it is interesting to see that uh you know there's it's particularly localized hops creep in that sense with uh you know some hops varieties more than others you know again it's all evolving science and uh you know thankfully you know more folks are doing research on this to try to um pinpoint it and see what we can do uh, clearly, it's it's a problem for everybody, uh, not everyone, but a lot of people are, are having issues around that. Um, you know, and, and you did also kind of touch on the you know warm warmer versus colder dry hopping. Dry hopping in, in the fifties is uh, is a pretty cool uh, kind of temperature to dry hop at, and uh, you know that's going to impact potentially your extraction from the hops, which of course increases the amount of hops you have to use to get that same kind of bold impact that you're looking for. Um, when you kind of made some of that switch in order to help the kind of production process and be able to to harvest yeast and whatnot, um, did you find that you had to use more in the dry hop, or did you develop some other techniques to try to improve the extraction from dry hopping? <laughs> we actually use the same amount. We dry hop for shorter periods of time. Really, um, we found we found no significant change in anything other than. Our beers seem to be ready for consumption a little bit sooner. Um, we've gotten a lot. Of, this kind of goes hand in hand with some other things that we've gotten better at. Uh, pitchable quantities, like yeast count and how much yeast we're pitching in, and beers becoming terminal and in a more consistent manner at times. So that it, I won't say it's all one thing. Um, we, I think there's some. There's a couple of though. It's Scott Janish's book, the whatever it's called. It's around here somewhere. Uh, it's in our quality office. Um, there's a couple of, um, I won't say studies, but um, a couple of um, references to go by that this might potentially be a way to cut down on some of the the more obnoxious byproducts we get by the ridiculous amounts we hop we use. We haven't gone up any. Um, I like, I think our beers are finishing um softer faster and it will huh. be honest with you we've only been doing this for about two or three months um and we're able to kind of uh, be more efficient and more sustainable with uh, um with our yeast usage and uh, well i mean we brought a a full-time uh, ringer quality person on uh, probably four months ago and with the idea of that we knew that there were some things that we we needed to gain some consistencies on and having that person also to be able to manage a yeast program uh, with a good with a good lab and science background i mean she's amazing we got her from um from new belgium well, not from new belgium but she hailed from new belgium and sierra nevada before that so uh the level of knowledge there i'm absolutely stoked about i mean sure um, yeah the uh, you know as we look at some of the the studies that have been done out there, there definitely is that suggestion that um, 
you know, dry hopping past a certain critical mass, um, you know, is a kind of declining proposition that, uh, you know, as you push more matter that will drop out and also pull hops flavor out with it. And, um, you know, and so in that sense, it, it's not necessarily counterintuitive when you say that it is just kind of interesting to see how you get to that threshold and ride that threshold to where you're getting that maximum efficiency without you know overloading and then working against yourself as those volumes keep going up or, or up and up and up i i think um we have uh, again from uh, just to, to gain some efficiencies in the cellar we've gone from one big and one small dry hop to three to four smaller dry hops over a, a, a period of time uh-huh. and <clears throat> Again, anecdotally, and I'll say that word a million times, probably more today after we sure, get off the mic. Sure. Um, I f- think that maybe the potentially the the material disperses better, hmm. and and we find that we don't get rafted T ninety pellets on the top of thirty barrels beer. Um, so we can <clears throat> we'll dry hop with whatever I don't know sixty six pound hops. And then the next day, 24 hours later, we'll come in with the same charge. Instead of going in with, with 200 pounds of hops and a single dry hop, we'll split that out over four days. And um, it seems you have contact time, um, greater surface contact with a smaller amount of product, I think we might might lend itself to better extraction for that particular. And though the gravity will start to affect that, will start to drop out immediately. And the next set goes on top and you have another set of extraction. I don't know if there's a set. I don't. I mean, not scientific enough personally to know sure. that the extraction point of where how much how much more of these oils and um, and things that we're pulling from the hops are, but it seems to have worked well. I mean, I, I like where our beers are going, and, and we're developing a level of consistency. And yeah, I think it's safer, and uh, it uh, our beers seem to finish faster. Yeah, we're, we're able to get them into package sooner. Plus, you, I guess you could technically call it quadruple dry hopped then, right? Because you're dry hopping four times. <laughs> That's uh, the smoke and mirrors, man. The smoke and mirrors. Hey, whatever sells the beer, right? That's right. <laughs> um, let's we try to let's... keep the double dry hop. You um, just you, you leave it yeah, a double and you don't push past that. Out. Okay, okay. It's the same amount of hops we would have used in a traditional double dry hop. We usually right. just split it out over three or four days. And some yeah. of them we do triple dry hop. We take it another, we have another round on top of that. Um, but those are just for the big boys, big, big boys. For sure, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the body of the beer. Now, you know, you kind of talked about earlier in the way that you, you know, use adjuncts and uh, lactose in some of these, but not uh, most of them. And now you even mentioned bar, uh, chip malt uh, as another potential way to kind of build body in some of these. Um, as we all know, if you're going to push hops flavors at that kind of scale, you balance it, you know, both with alcohol and with some residual sweetness. And that also that kind of residual sweetness in the beer helps bring out some of the fruit characters that you're working so hard to, you know, to push into these beers by using all of those hops, um, you know, creating those layers of balance, you know, it becomes this, uh, you know, interesting multivariate kind of equation um you know for you and of course i know you do it in a few different ways um, but talk to me a little bit about some of those ways and some of the ways that you envision you know even say creating a balance between abv uh you know sweetness in a beer residual sweetness in the beer and that level of ibu and uh you know and hop uh, quantity and quality well that's a tough one um i won't say it's a tough one but it's one i'd, I'd really think about it. We usually, um, 
we find a program that works for us with this. Yeah. We know that where a beer is going to finish, some of our beers finish, and we'll we'll still go back and use some alternative, some different yeast from time to time, just because I can't stop fidgeting with crap. I really, it's, <laughs> if, if you would take me out of the equation, our beers would be probably a ton better and more consistent. Um, How are you going to find your I'm, happy accidents if you don't keep trying to mess things up? Uh, well, then just put me in part part and charge a supply chain. That then we won't have. <laughs> then we'll just we'll be screwed up and we'll have to do other stuff. Um, <laughs> no, we we play um, with varying levels of different adjunct, knowing that knowing what wheat brings to the table with regards to flavor with regards to haze and which regard with regards to body, depending on whether it's malted, torrified, raw, spelt, flaked, uh, different varieties of flaked or different manufacturers of different color, um, and oats, whether it's flaked or whether it's, uh, whether they're raw and steel cut or whether they're malted with husk or not. Um, we have, and I think a lot of people have, it's the, we're not reinventing the wheel and I, like the, we're not that we do probably some things a little bit different. I think everybody's got a little something different they do, but um, we've we've moved almost entirely away from flaked flaked oats um, yeah. and a lot of flaked grains and gone to the malted with um, malted oats with husk. We found that the the husks are a ridiculously tremendous loudering aid. Um, we're we actually we dumped the beer because. Uh, we lost uh, we lost cellar control on the panel one day, but we made a 50% oat malt, 50% wheat malt IPA with quike yeast one time, and I was <laughs> super jazzed. And um, it tasted really well, but we lost the cellar over a four or five day period, and the yeast autolysis. We had autolysis, and it tasted like yeah. hamburger meat. Um, <laughs> not quite, but pretty close. We're going to do that again, but. Uh, um, so you did a fifty percent wheat, fifty percent uh, oats on a traditional brew house with a yeah. normal mash louder ton. That's mm-hmm. insane. I mean, we when I, I talked to you know Keegan from Modest uh, last year, and they are using a mash filter and were able to are able to do the same exact thing. You know, because with a mash filter you can get away with things that you can't do if you're uh, you know using a traditional mash louder ton. You're but, that close to having a mash filter system in this place. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, but do you know, and, and so what, how did you louder that beer? It was, it really just down to that kind of husk on oats that the, helped you do it or the husk to kernel ratio in malted oats, um, especially the ones we get are pretty significant. I think we used, uh, three quarters of 1% overall volume in rice hulls as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have any problems with it. We have relatively good efficiency and uh, the diastatic power of a malted wheat um, is better than barley. So, huh. um, yeah, it's, it wasn't a fact, it wasn't a conversion issue at all. Yeah. And it louded pretty well. Um, it was hideous. The beer was hideous. It looked like mud. Um, <laughs> I mean, it would have. It would Consumers have would love it. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> the worse it looks, the better it sells. Uh, that's, right. that's a that's a funny on social media. People are like, "Oh, that looks delicious," and I'm like, "It's hideous, isn't it?" And they're like, "You made this beer. Why are you talking trash about your own stuff?" I'm like, "Come on, man, have fun with me." <laughs> anyway, no, um, um it, it was a little slower, but it wasn't bad. I, I mean, I, I recall. I mean, I don't think I was on the brew house that day, but. Um, I made sure to 
to ask and I'm like, hey, let me know if anything kind of goes haywire for you guys. And no, uh, it went pretty well. Um, and we had to we had to do that again. Um, I think we called that we were going to call that beer absurd but magnificent. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there's a there's a new there's a new strain of quike out there. We don't use quike a lot. We we have we use it a good amount, but there's a new one out there that's got some really crazy fruity flavors out there um, that Omega's got. I think we're gonna dip into that relatively soon maybe we'll try it again i'll send you some sure sure have you uh, released any other quike beers and uh we do we use um we use the hornendahl strain for okay. our berliner vices we don't kettle sour we raw we do raw berliner vices hmm. all the time um we found a way you just never know what you're gonna get you get really you have something gets out of whack in a kettle sour and all of a sudden it tastes like a butt and um, yeah. we we um, we brew a traditional three and a half, four percent, fifty percent wheat beer, and we run it through our heat exchanger, and we pitch, um, we pitch uh, a pure strain of lactobacillus on top of it, and twenty four hours later we come right back in with Hornendahl. It's at ninety degrees. It's we have a four percent Berliner Weiss done in four days, uh, and then we fruit the hell out of it. And it uh, it just hits its own kind of terminal acidity, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, and where does that end up without having to kind of finish it with uh, you know a hit cattle hit? Uh, before before fruit, it's usually three three four to three six is on yeah. the pH. We usually pitch the quike uh, about twelve to eighteen hours in, where we're like three six to three eight. Uh, but the quike ferments so quickly, and the it. It seemed like a natural progression from the lacto, which we pitch at 90. The beer's still at 88 degrees the next yeah. day. The quite goes in. It's fermenting in two hours. And the lactobacillus doesn't have really that much of a chance. We've right. got some ideas of, of a built ways to arrest um, arrest the, the souring level on some kind of kind of fun, funky things we want to try out here soon. But we've um, this disease has kind of <laughs> had to circle the wagons a little bit For on sure. On um, on the fun stuff that we do, that's all fun. But yeah, yeah. Have you on the weird stuff? Have you brewed hoppy beers with the quite yeast? Yeah, we do. We do. Um, we we have a, a single single hop hoppy blonde that we are running through. We've done it with Strata. We've done it with Amarillo, and it's non dry hopped. About probably, I guess, probably it comes in about sixty IBU. Yeah. Um, we do it with Quike, and um, it's I love the beer. It's really nice. Quike's got this kind of tanginess to it mm-hmm. a little uh, i don't know if it's it's almost like a a little bit of a metallic acidity but it's not like faulty me- metallic it's almost yeah. just like when you put a penny in your mouth you get the little tang you know i don't put pennies in my mouth guys um <laughs> not anymore right right so I, but maybe, i remember what it was like describe it as almost like flinty you know if you wanted to uh, yeah. make it a, a positive association um, you know, this is what I'm curious, and we've been watching this. I mean, I've had a you know a number of Quake IPAs, and I think the the thing that I'm curious about is how they age. You know, that that fresh, they seem to taste bright and lovely. And uh, I've had some at 60 days or 60 days plus, where it seems like they may not hold with the same kind of consistency as as some other yeast and i'm not sure why that is or if, if that's down to just those brewers whose examples that i've had in that kind of the realm but uh you know it's certainly something i've been trying to watch and pay attention to i don't know if you've sensed anything around that no we've got um we've got the most recent hoppy blonde it's and i guess it's 40 45 or 60 days old and we've got some warm on our sensory shelf so that's uh, 
if you remind me in a month or so, I'll, I'll let you know. We'll do a triangle with it with a new one. Sure. I sure. will tell you that uh, the only problem we have with Quake, if we're not paying attention and we leave the tank warm too long, um, the it finishes so fast, it gets autolytic. Yeah. Um, yeah quicker you have to be like uh, let's get the yeast out from underneath this beer and let's get it let's get it finished and crashed yeah um we had that we had the bright idea before the last hurricane we knew uh with florence the one that kicked a hit a loving crap out of us we're like hey we've got two pitches of quake we brewed two beers the day before the hurricane hit we're like we're just gonna let them ferment with quake and not turn the jackets on well little we know we we, we didn't have jackets for 21 days so the the beer tab like it was the worst everything else was kind of everything else that was finished in the tank that got warm was like man this is still all right they're like i bet these quake beers are going to be amazing like holy god it was horrible um Uh, that was that's a less happy accident right there Uh, yeah we wrote a lot we would have lost the east anyway who cares for sure i mean i care but sure um, are there any other uh, kind of interesting brewing projects that uh, you know you've uh, pushed through over the last three or four months where you've learned something that was maybe a little bit counterintuitive for you, or uh, um, you know that, that kind of led you in a new or an interesting direction? Our big one, and I don't I talk about this with people that I can, um, but I don't think I've talked about it like with media or any. Um, we have uh, we had we had problems early on keeping latching our haze in it didn't matter when we dry hopped we just had issues we would sure. we were making these 30 percent or 20 percent oat beers that would be in the package for a week and you would pour the second keg of draft off of it and it would pour out bright like a west coast ipa mm. and there's something wrong i think if i drank it out of a can it would be okay but it doesn't look like it it you're not supposed to taste like what's in my mouth. I need you to be hazy. And I don't get what that is. It's probably probably some kind of emotional hang-up I have towards hazy IPAs. But we um, we, we weren't changing any processes. We were trying to, like, what's going on? Let's try dry hopping earlier, this. Then we had an update on this piece of software we use to generate kind of our water and salt sheet that we do. And we did this and we brewed a beer and we our mash pH was really, really low, down in the low 5.1s. Uh, and that's a couple more in the high 50, 5.08, 5.09. And I'm like, oh my God, what's this beer gonna be like? We had really low, um, really low boil pHs. The beers came out great and there was nothing that we could do to get the haze to drop out of them, huh. like nothing. And uh, there's a point where if I think that, and it's probably really rudimentary and a million other brewers probably already thought about this, is when you get your your boil pH is conducive to breaking out a lot of this protein. And I think the more protein you have to play with the the polyphenols and you get this biotransformative process, I think the more likely you are. I mean, we will come back a year later, our beers will still be hazy. And I know a lot lot of times, um, there'll be a lot of shit on the bottom of the can. Sorry, um, but um, but the key was mash pH no, that was, and boil pH. Yeah, and keeping mash, those mash pH of five point one five or lower has really allowed us. And um, and it was kind of we didn't realize. Like I was wondering what the problem was, and and one of my calculations in my water sheet was I messed up, and I hmm. like I was like a decimal place off on something, and I went back and fixed it, and I'm like, oh no wonder this is now it's showing like our, our pre-calculations were right. I'm like, well, let's 
go back and let's now we add more acid malt. So we're in the uh, what usually gets us there on on the big majority of our beers is we're about 3.1 to 3.2 percent acid malt. Okay. And there we don't use phosphoric or lactic. We have uh, to if we miss to get it right. down into the desirable under the, the the goal for us is to get a boil pH of below 5.2. A 5.2 seems to be that that hot that hot break hotbed. Yeah. I mean everybody brewers know that, but if we can get that boil that boil down into four nine and five, uh, we knock out really well and um bad part is we just don't get a good cone and we have to we lose a little bit of volume. It seems like the that hot break really draws the hops down in the cone when we whirlpool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we're we're getting up there in time now. Before we uh, finish off here, I, I want to ask you um, what you see for the future of New Anthem, what uh, success means for you and for the brewery, and uh, how will you know when you've achieved it? Um, when I start sleeping better at night? Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll see when we get out of this. I'm happy with where we are from a quality level. I'm happy where we are learning professionally with the people in the front, the people in the back, and the people in the front office, um, which we actually have a little front office now and some operations people and marketing um, for this small a brewery as we are. Um, our number one goal is to always, and it's kind of in our operating motto in our, and that's on our website, and our claim is, um, we the goal is to make the absolute best beer we can every time and to constantly keep up on quality. The dock is short. It's an old phrase I used to use in my past life. People, um, but I, I don't know what the future holds for us. I know we're going to keep plugging away, um, whether it's hazies or whether it's we make we're pretty decent mix firm. We make some really good dark stuff, and our barrel age program is growing uh, by the week. Um, I like our barrel age stuff as well. You've had our barley wine. It's pretty decent. Yeah. Not bad for a first go around for us. Um, our goal is to grow uh, professionally and personally. Um, we want to be able to use this as an outlet to help our community. Um, till this, we're, we're in the process of hopefully creating a um, uh, vendor-managed fund. It's like a charity or a foundation for us to be able to have a quick mobilization of money for people in our community that need it, whether it's kids at uh, lower-income schools, kids, people in, in marginalized. Uh, that's ultimately the goal. One, we're going to make the best beer we can. If we can make a little bit of money out of this, great. If not, um, we're in it for the long haul in Wilmington. If we were smarter, we probably would have built our production brewery in Raleigh or Charlotte. Uh, it's a market a little bit um, more conducive. I mean, there's we only have 150,000 people here, uh, but we love Wilmington and we want to we want to be a an anchor and a foundation uh, to Wilmington and New Hanover County for as long as we can and making beer for as long as we can as well. Well, cheers, cheers to that. Nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, Mexico partner with GND Chillers. Carrie Biohaze from BSG adds that perfect, stable, cloudy appearance. Brumation specializes in electric, steam, and direct fire brew houses. Spike is your source for reliable home and nano systems. Abe is your trusted source for complete brewing and packaging solutions. And Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast. Aaron Skiles, New Anthem Brewing, Wilmington, North Carolina. If people want to learn more about you, uh, where do they find you? Uh, Instagram, Facebook. Instagram is probably a little bit better than Facebook. Uh, handle is at New Anthem Beer. Uh, you can find us online at uh, www.newanthembeer.com, um, shop.newanthembeer.com. 
Um, if you're in state, we can send you beer. If you're out of state, we can send you some swag. We have pretty decent swag. Um, and that's it. Cool. Well, Aaron, it's great to talk. You can to find you. our tap room at you can find our tap room at 110 Greenfield Avenue, but there's nobody in there. So, <laughs> well, once we eventually get through this, uh, you know, COVID uh, social distancing era, and we can just, uh, flatten the curve and keep these hot spots from uh, from flaring up too much, then I'm sure uh, you know people that are in the area will go enjoy a little beer in your tap room again. God, I hope so. Yeah. yeah. Just um, hope we can wipe this thing out pretty soon. For sure. For sure. Well, Aaron, it's... Uh, Can't wait. So then maybe I can come out to another brewer's retreat sometime. One of these days. So maybe you can... Uh, one of these maybe days. you can be a featured brewer one of our brewer's retreats. Nobody will want to be in that group. <laughs> it's, uh, it's always fun to watch how that develops. But uh, no, super impressed with your beer. It's always great to talk to you, Aaron. I appreciate you joining me on the podcast Thank today. You, yeah. Cheers. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate you guys. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.